I really appreciate the elders inviting me, and um, this is uh, our first trip back, I guess, since our departure earlier this summer, and so it's really nice to see Shelby and, and Billy, but, but several friends and familiar faces, so we really appreciate your hospitality, and, and uh, we hope that tonight will be an encouragement to you. The topic tonight is a little bit uh, of an oxymoron. It's It's the idea of being blessed in persecution. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges us in several different ways. And one of those ways is he talks about those that are persecuted. And he basically states affirmatively that they are to understand that as a blessing. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. Is how is it that we can approach and view and think about persecution suffering for righteousness righteousness sake as a blessing rather than a burden. Let me begin by quoting Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville wrote a book called Democracy in America. And this was a challenging book. It was written as he traveled the, as a Frenchman uh, the new frontier of America in the 1800s. And some of the observations that he made have been deemed almost prophetic because of the fact that he hit so close to home. One of the things that he predicted was that America would be a great nation one day and that the European nations would diminish. And in fact, all that would be left of the European nations would be uh, basically a repository for culture. In other words, museums. And if you've visited Europe or uh, read enough in the newspaper about uh, the strength of our economy vis-a-vis Europe, you you recognize that he's pretty much been spot on. We have grown to be one of the greatest superpowers of the world, and Europe's still got some pretty good museums. He's also predicted, though, that Russia would become a great tyrant, a despot, a powerful force for not necessarily democracy. He was correct about that, and he predicted that America and Russia would at some point in time basically control half of the world. And that, of course, took place during the Cold War period. But one of the things that I would like to quote from de Tocqueville's book that I think is most pertinent tonight is the fact that although he hoped that America would be a great example for democracy, he was worried. He was worried about the power of the majority He was worried that the fact that we are so dependent on whatever popular opinion, whatever um, the majority vote would carry an issue, or that it would actually spill over into almost every sphere of life, that we would be ruled by majoritarianism. His fear was that if you're ruled by a king and he says you have to do X or Y, that doesn't really affect you psychologically. You could still resent the fact that you have to obey. But if you're ruled by your neighbors, if you're ruled by popular vote, if you're ruled by the majority, he was fearful that that would reach into the citizens' hearts and minds, that it would break our will to resist the popular sentiment, he said, that we would actually stop thinking for ourselves. Majoritarianism, he was afraid, would make individuals internally ashamed to contradict popular opinion which would, in effect, silence them. And this silence would culminate in a cessation of thinking. Tonight, I want to challenge you tonight and ask you in a very sober way, have you stopped thinking? Are we guilty 
of sort of putting our rational, what we know to be right and wrong brain on a shelf in the face of just an onslaught of popular opinion that seems to be disregarding objective truth, that seems to really not care what God's will is. And that, as a result, has caused us to go internal, be silent, and basically just stop thinking about it. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? Especially in today's world where we have so many issues that we're facing. Whether it's abortion or divorce or same-sex marriage, cohabitation, having babies out of wedlock, society has changed rather dramatically. Most of the issues that I just named are now by a majority in this country supported. They're no longer against. And before we start picking on the millennials, those born uh, uh, since 1980, 18 to 35, before we start picking on them, let me just point out to those of you that are 55 and older, that you are the biggest swing vote. That the biggest change has not been with those that are below 55. The biggest change in opinion in America on those basic moral issues has been with Americans over the age of 55. Did you realize that the acceptance of divorce as no big deal for Americans over the age of 55 has gone up 21 percentage points since 2001? Support for same-sex marriage up 25% percentage points since 2001. Now a majority of folks over the age of 55 support same-sex marriage in this country. Over 57%. Acceptance for having a baby outside of marriage up from 45% in 2001 among those over 55 to now over 60%. Does that disturb you? The fact that so many of our peers that are raised the same way that you were raised in what we would call, you know, the, the golden years of, uh, uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't hippies. They were even predating the hippies. And yet, even they have had their opinions influenced or their opinions have been influencing our culture. So I challenge you as Christians to think of yourselves for a moment as a minority, perhaps more so than ever. And as you are tempted to uh, be defensive and want to lash out and be angry and upset that so much of society has abandoned the old ways, the old paths. And I want to challenge you the way that Peter challenged the early Christians who were also facing trials and persecution. I want to challenge you the same way that Jesus challenged his disciples, who he said, they persecuted me, don't, don't think they won't persecute you. In fact, be ready for it. I want to remind you the way that they were taught to face persecution, and that is to understand that it's a blessing and that you have an opportunity to be different on purpose, that you can see the difference between being the salt and the unsalted, to being the light and the darkness. In fact, you may be here 
for just such a time. A time in which God will be glorified in an amazing way. But only if you face this time in a way that God can bless. Only if you understand how to face even the most difficult kind of persecution. Because the kind of persecution we're talking about, let's be honest, pales in comparison to what many Christians before us have been called to face with the same attitude that I'm asking us to think about tonight. They faced actual pain of death. They faced watching their own children murdered in front of them because they refused to deny Christ. What we're being asked to do is much more subtle. We're being asked to make sure that we maintain the truth in love in a world which doesn't believe in truth, doesn't believe it's possible to know the truth, and even if they in their secret hearts admit there is a truth, do not want it to come to light because they don't want to be held against that standard. It's a much more subtle kind of persecution, but it's real nevertheless. I say that because as a lawyer, I've, just, I've recognized and you've recognized in the media that there has been a change, a shift in the law and its ability to protect Christians, both at the federal, law, at the federal level and at the state level. There have been large fines imposed against photographers in New Mexico, a bakery in Portland, Oregon, wedding venue owners all over the country fined or threatened with fines and brought before uh, tribunals and administrative hearing judges because they simply don't want to violate their conscience and help facilitate or celebrate or serve those that they believe are engaging in the sin of same-sex relations. It's a weird time in which opinions have shifted, but it's a dangerous time when you realize that the laws have shifted. No longer does the First Amendment protect... the. You can no longer assume that the First Amendment protects your religious exercise, the free exercise of religion. The Supreme Court, in the latest decision, Obergefell, made very clear that they believe that the First Amendment protects your right to advocate, to teach against same-sex relations. Like what I'm doing tonight. We're not going to really get into the Scriptures and point out the verses that would clearly uh, label that as sin. But the right to do that, they don't really question the right to advocate or teach but they don't go so far as to say that that can then be translated and applied in your Christian life in a consistent way. That doesn't mean necessarily that a Christian college can discriminate against same-sex couples when it comes to who they can uh, allow to use their married student housing, for example. That was something that one of the Supreme Court justices pointed out in his dissent. It's a big open question mark now that this decision has come out. It doesn't, decide, it doesn't decide for sure whether or not a preacher who many of you take for granted has the freedom in this country to preach the truth in season and out of season. And that's a privilege. It's a, it's a blessing. It's a constitutional right that we've enjoyed for hundreds of years. And yet now the Supreme Court is questioning whether or not he would be permitted to do that in a wedding ceremony by deciding to only marry opposite-sex couples and not same-sex couples. Because after all, in the United States, we mix the religious ceremony with the civil ceremony. You know what the preacher says at the end of a wedding, right? By the power vested in me by God. No, 
by the power vested in me by the state of Alabama, I now pronounce you man and wife. And so you've had a lot of preachers ask, asking, are we going to be forced to choose to do weddings or all weddings? Because we want to, only, we want to be able to discriminate and only perform weddings that we believe God is joining together. One man and one woman for life. And the courts can't really give you an answer to that right now. Probate judges are in the state of Alabama are scared about whether or not they should, in good conscience, be giving out any licenses for fear that they'll be accused of discriminating if they don't give them out to same-sex couples. It's a struggle that we're trying to have of the conscience in applying what we have always taken for granted in this country. We had the freedom to exercise our religious beliefs, sincerely held religious beliefs. And yet you can't assume any longer, that that won't be challenged, either by the government in the form of sanctions or by other citizens in the form of civil suits brought by them against you in a court of law. Churches are trying to decide to what extent should they even open up the church building to the community. Because if you open it up for the Boy Scouts, if you open it up for, for uh, voting booths, if you open it up for other uh, quasi or non-religious activities maybe an AA's, AA meeting or, or something like that. You are arguably setting yourself up to be declared a place of public accommodation. And once you're a place of public accommodation, guess what? You're legally required not to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation in certain jurisdictions. The federal law is very likely to be forthcoming. Many states have already passed such an ordinance. And in those states that haven't, there are big cities in those states that are trying to do that or have. And so there will be a coming a time where churches are going to have to be more circumspect in the extent to which they use this building for something other than strictly religious services. Else they'd be declared a place of public accommodation and be forced to allow uh, uh, an LBGT group, for example, to use the facilities too. Does that scare you at all? Does it make you nervous? I'm not trying to focus on this one sin to the exclusion of others. I think the same thing has happened when it comes to no-fault divorce and the church's ability to practice church discipline in divorce and remarriage cases. The same thing is happening when it comes to any kind of sin in which has taken a hold of people's lives and then becomes accepted by society, called something else despite God's unchanging law. All of that, I think, is, is, is meant to sort of help you sort of crystallize in your mind the idea that persecution is not that far away. That it's not something that used to happen. It's not something that only happens in other countries. There are adoption agencies in Boston and Washington, D.C. that because of their religious convictions have had to close their doors. And as a result, many young orphans have not been able to be cared for and found uh, good homes because they were told Either you allow same-sex couples to adopt the babies or nobody gets to adopt the babies. There have been situations in which um, colleges have had to defend their policy, even faith-based colleges. It's not some novel thing. It's not some radical idea to think of Faulkner or Fried Hardeman or the college that, that was recently in trouble in Boston, Massachusetts and brought up uh, for review by their regional accreditation body simply for having a policy that says this. Students and faculty are not allowed to have any kind of sexual relations outside of marriage in paren, traditional 
marriage. Nothing radical about that, and yet it was enough to trigger an accreditation review. And many weren't sure for a few weeks whether or not they might be unaccredited for simply doing something that's considered a traditional moral policy for a faith-based institution. I think you get the idea. You'll notice it very subtly. Maybe when you fill out the student financial loan forms this year, those federal forms no longer ask for the mother's name and the father's name. It's parent one and parent two. Got a U.S. passport? Check out the U.S. passport application. Doesn't ask for the mother or the father anymore. Parent one, parent two. I'm not saying it'll destroy completely the concept of motherhood in this country. I I pray that Mother's Day never, never ceases to be. But it's very subtly changed the way we think by changing the words we use. Not just in the legal forms, but in the textbooks in our public schools. And that trend will continue. And if you are going to remain a distinctive people, that light, that salt, that that ability to influence the world for good, we are going to have to keep calling biblical things by biblical names. Speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent. That's a challenge in today's world. Where they're losing the very ability to articulate the truth. They don't even have the right language now. I throw a few biblical terms out and the eyes of the young people will glaze over. Lasciviousness. Let's try a simpler one. Fornication. I sort of think I know what that is. We're losing the ability to even talk about sin because the world wants to lull us into thinking there's no such thing. Is that a form of persecution? I think it is. It's certainly going to cause suffering not just for society as a whole, but for families and for individuals that get deceived into thinking this way. But again, my message tonight is one of hope. And I want you to hear from somebody like Peter who is, let's admit, susceptible, was very susceptible to peer pressure. On the night Jesus was being tried, you remember? Some folks, just strangers, not under any penalty of threat of death, directly, asked him, aren't you one of his? Aren't you associated with the Jesus that's undergoing this trial? He denied it not once, not twice, but three times, even cursing. And then the cock crows twice, and he was reminded that his Lord told him he'd do that. But you also remember the good news. The good news is our Lord, after going through that painful experience, rose again and cooked breakfast for Peter just a few weeks later. And what experience that was for Peter because it gave an opportunity that after he denied his Lord three times, even made eye contact with the Lord to the point that when he saw the Lord, it caused him to weep, realizing the shame of what he'd done and run away. And now his Lord was giving him a chance on a seashore with breakfast to counter those three denials with three affirmations. Yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. I love you. And each time he said, feed my sheep was the message. I don't want you to give up. I want you to recognize that I'm the God of second chances, that Jesus loves us despite our failures, that he wants to use us to glorify his Father in heaven in all of our mistakes and frailties. But it only is possible if we're willing to stand up, stand firm, even if we fall down, even if we fall short, To get up again, ask Him to forgive us. He's just unable to do that. 
according to 1 John 2. And therefore, we're continually cleansed by His blood, not just so that we can get to heaven, but so that we can glorify Him. So that we can actually suffer as Christ suffered. That we can actually count it joy. That we can actually find that a blessing. That's the message in a very fundamental way of what it means to be a Christian. I think too many people approach their Christianity with an attitude that suggests that they think God owes them. That when they come even to worship Him on the first day of the week or in a devotional setting like this, their attitude is almost, look, this has costed me a lot of time, a lot of money, and so you owe me a great speaker. You owe me well-padded pews. You owe me, God, is almost the attitude that sometimes gets unintentionally caught up. We get unintentionally caught up in. And yet, the Lord has called us to do something very different. You understood it when you were baptized. You understood that you were dying to yourself to live for Him. So you understood fundamentally that it wasn't about you. That it was supposed to be a sacrifice. That you are now a living sacrifice. And yet, for some reason, the way we approach our Christianity is still almost like we're going to a shopping mall. Very consumer-minded. I want you to listen to what Peter has to say. If you will, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I just want to suggest four things that I think he's trying to tell even us today. In the face of persecution, why we need to be able to look at that as a blessing, as the Lord said on the Sermon on the Mount. So starting in verse 12... He starts out by saying, Beloved, do not think, this is 1 Peter 4, verse 12. He starts out by saying, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. I think his first point is is abundantly clear, isn't it? He's trying to tell Christians, even in the first century, to expect persecution. Don't think it strange. Don't be surprised. You don't need to think that God owes you something. You need to assume that you still owe Him. That you are here to mortify yourself, to die to yourself, and to live for Christ. To pick up that cross and follow Him. We should, in essence, expect persecution. Think about what Mark 13.13 said. Jesus said, you will be hated. You will be hated. Not maybe, not some. He was speaking in a fairly categorical way. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. There's the blessing. Or perhaps James chapter 1 verse 12 puts it well when it said, blessed is the man who endures. Your translation may read temptation. Actually, the better translation would be trials. And I'd make a note there in the margin if you like to do that sort of thing in your Bible. Blessed is the man who endures trials, for when he has been proved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to those who love him. Or my favorite, Romans chapter 8. That beautiful passage which talks about walking in the Spirit and how there's no condemnation in Christ. He he puts it this way in verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed. Isn't that beautiful? 
to think about all the troubles and all the persecution and all the sense of being a minority and how the world doesn't seem to get it and how frustrating that might be to say, you know, on the scale, that seems like a big deal. But in comparison to the glory that awaits us, it's not much to have to endure. I hope that that kind of message is something that you can see even in this passage in 1 Peter 4. But he just wants you to see, first of all, that it's, a, it's something that you've got to assume may be part of your life. You, you should actually expect it. In fact, if you're not facing any kind of persecution, if the whole world thinks that loves you and has no real... You don't make them feel uncomfortable at all. You need to be asking yourself, am I shining the light of Christ or am I hiding it under a bushel? Am I just getting along because they really can't see any distinction? Now, I realize that early on in the, in the New Testament, you see in the early chapters of Acts how the people that were being converted to Christianity, the, the, the newest disciples, the Bible said, had the favor of all the people. But I want to remind you that you don't see that being the case for very long. You get to chap- Acts chapter 4, you see him starting to get jailed. And by Acts chapter 7, you see him actually being put to death. And so the message of the New Testament is not this, yes, Christianity is so likable that everybody, no matter what their their habitual uh, uh, lifestyle is, is going to never be offended by you. And if they're offended by you, then you're being too harsh. You're being too judgmental. You're being too legalistic. If that's your concept of Christianity, then you haven't read the New Testament all the way through. You stopped with some idyllic idea that doesn't recognize when Jesus said, I've come. To put father and son against one another. He has not brought the sword without any purpose. He wants the word of God to pierce and divide even the marrow and the bone. And to do that, you've got to make people uncomfortable. You've got to be able to talk to them in very concrete ways about very delicate things that we normally would just categorically refer to as sin. But if I give it a specific I'll be stepping on toes pretty quickly, won't I? And that's a challenge. And, and I know the scriptures say speak it in love, but it doesn't say that once you've perfectly spoken it in love that you won't offend some. In fact, Paul said that the offense, fundamentally the offense is the cross. That at the core of our faith is something that was offensive. And so if your test is don't offend, else you're not doing it or teaching it or preaching it right, then you do not understand the same gospel that Paul preached. Because he understood that his was inherently one of offense. Even done in love. It's a challenge. And as a result, we're going to face persecution. We're going to face rejection. And folks are going to suggest things that, that are not necessarily the case. And so Peter gets very practical. In his next point, he says in verse 13, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, what he's asking us to do here, and in verse 14, if you read on, is to examine our attitude. First, you've got to expect some suffering, some persecution in this life. But the second thing you need to be doing is while we're going through this life, keep your attitude in check. 
make sure you understand the proper Christian response to persecution is rejoicing. That's hard. We're more of the, you know, uh, eye for the eye kind of people. We have a very short fuse sometimes. And it's hard for us to step back and see the big picture and understand that we're now sharing in the suffering of Christ. And we ought to rejoice in that. In the moment, we either lash out or we're afraid. And yet, the New Testament teaches that the gospel, what what Paul brought, what, what Jesus wants to give to you is not a spirit of fear or hopelessness that keeps a lot of us from being as effective and seeing the situation we're in as, a, as something to rejoice in. It's hard, but part of it is our attitude. It's so critical. And he says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. It's a, it's a challenge, but I think it's important that we recognize that what Paul is trying to encourage us to do is to control what we can control. You can't control what people do to you or how they respond to you. But what you can control is how you react to it. And you have to take that, what you can control, and use that to glorify God in every case. Now... Um, Let's connect this up to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I alluded to it earlier. There it's where it says God has not given us a spirit of fear. The original Greek there is timidity. Instead, that's talking about a cowardice, a shamefulness. The, the, the attitude that we sometimes had is, is sometimes in reaction to persecution might be anger. But in many other cases, it's just cowardness. It's being silent, stop thinking about it. Try to get along. He says we're not given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The power is the word of God, thoroughly able to furnish you into every good work. If you want to understand what God's will is for your life, about how to handle a situation that has eternal consequences, the power lies in your hands. The love is the way in which you speak that truth, that power. And the sound mind is the ability to reason and discern and know that you know that you know truth. Those three things are the antidote to any irrational fear, to any irrational anger that you might have in the face of persecution. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, though, and read with me starting verse 15. Because the third point, after he tries to say, look, expect persecution... And then secondly, make sure you're checking your attitude throughout any persecution. The third point in verses 15 and 16 is to make sure that you are evaluating its cause, that you're checking the reason that you're being persecuted. Sometimes it's because you're right. But sometimes it's because you're wrong. You know, listen to the verse. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. 
You know, sometimes you can, ha- you, can be on- you can be right on the position and wrong in the way you're taking that position. You can be right about the fact that homosexuality is a sin, for example. But you may face persecution for being a busybody who is spreading gossip and trying to defame people and trying to hurt people, their feelings, and calling them names. Being right theologically does not mean that you are justified in the way you're you're, you're announcing that truth. Does that make sense? And so he's telling you here that, look, if you are using the truth or your Christianity as an excuse to to be no better than a murderer or a thief or a busybody who's just name-calling and cutting people down and gossiping about them, then don't think your persecution is glorifying God. You're suffering because of what you're doing wrong, not by what you're doing right. And then he finishes it in the next verse by adding, For for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? In other words, he's reminding us that before, that for every finger pointed, there's four fingers pointing back. That that none of us can say that we haven't fallen short of the glory of God. That, That we all need to recognize our frailties and keep ourselves humble. Because only in that humility will we be able to stay in the light, walk in the Spirit, and have the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanse us of our sin. And that that reality, the fact that the house of God, that Christians, that we will be the first to be judged, will keep us, I think, in a little better perspective when we're trying to help people. You remember what Jesus said about this, right? He didn't say, don't judge. He said, make sure you take care of the log that's in your own eye before you try to take the speck out of somebody else's. He wants you to keep in mind that sometimes... When we're being persecuted, it's because of us and not the cross. And don't confuse the two. And be humble enough to say, you know what, I was too harsh there. I could have said that better. I should have made sure they understood how much I loved them before I condemned that. It's a challenge. But it's one Peter, I think, in his wisdom through the Holy Spirit, is calling us to practice. The last thing I think is probably the most important. Look in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, and that's what we're talking about, suffering according to the will of God, do one last thing. Expect it. Check your attitude. Make sure you know you're suffering for the will of God, not your own will. But the last thing, Commit their souls to Him in doing good, as to a faithful Creator. Commit is a banking term. It's the idea of making a deposit, putting something in a a secure place for safekeeping. And He's saying, I want you to commit your soul. I want you to commit the very essence of what you are. The only thing about you that's going to last forever, you have got to completely give it over to God. You've got to trust Him. 
In times of persecution, if you try to do it on your own, you try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, if you think you can handle this and not God, take heed lest you fall. Instead, entrust it to God. Your very soul depends on it. And he takes that, that idea, that banking term, and you can see it in other places like 1 Timothy chapter 20, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, where he says to Timothy, guard that deposit that's in you, that truth, that knowledge, that ability for you to, to know God and to know his will. You've got to guard that deposit that's put entrusted to you so that you can, as the church, be the pillar of, of truth in the world. But you're guarding it like you're guarding your own soul, first and foremost, by giving it to God. You want God to sustain your family, your career, your marriage, your relationships? Then put God first. Put God first. Give it to Him. Allow Him to be sovereign in your life and do good. That's basically what verse 19 is saying. If that's your priority in life, then I believe that you'll have the confidence that the Scriptures promise over and over and over again. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph, after going through so much suffering and persecution, was able to see, yeah, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which promises Christians that all things will work together for the good, that those who love him. Really? Do you believe that? It doesn't say all things will be good. You're going to suffer. You're going to face persecution. Expect that. But you've got to be able to rejoice in it knowing that while you share in the Christ's suffering, you will also share in His glory one day. And it will all work together for good to those that love Him and see His coming. Now, one last verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 which reminds us that with the way of escape, that with every temptation, God makes a way of escape. Why is that relevant? Because tonight, our reaction, that little time that we have between what someone says to us or what the world throws at us and our ability to respond in a way that glorifies God, it's tough. And some of us think we, we can't find that space. But what that scripture is telling us is that there is a path. And you can widen that path if you'll change your attitude. Be expecting it. Expect it to come. Change your attitude. And check yourself to make sure you're not contributing to the problem. And then give it to God and put your faith in Him. And what will happen is that little space of time, which may only be a few seconds, deciding whether to... Lash out in road rage when someone does you wrong and cuts out in front of you or, or causes you to, to want to immediately be defensive when someone treated you unfairly. Or, if you'll find that little space, God's saying he can use you. He's not just going to get you through that without sinning. He's going to use you to glorify him because people are going to be amazed by the fact that you don't react, react like the rest of the world, that you're different intentionally, and on purpose. You bow with me and let's have a word of prayer. Dear God, we're mindful of the Sermon on the Mount that your son gave many years ago. We are aware that so many of his sayings were, 
were meant for our good. And we pray to Heavenly Father that as we have meditated and studied on what your word has to say about the idea of being blessed in persecution, we pray to Heavenly Father that as the persecuted, to the extent, what little extent we've experienced it in our lives, we pray to Heavenly Father that we've reacted in a way that will glorify you. And if not, we pray to Heavenly Father that you'll forgive us. That as we repent of those sins, that you'll, you'll not hold those to our account so that we can have a second chance to face the difficulties of this life in a way that will glorify you and draw others to you, knowing that there's some kind of hope within us that makes a difference. We pray to Heavenly Father all this in your Son's name. Amen.